how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. While in college, Tracy Oliver was interested in the performing arts, but she eventually realized she was often the sassy, funny sidekick and not the lead. This realization, along with some advice from her mother, actually inspired her to start writing rather than to wait for someone to cast her. As a writer, she's known for Survivor's Remorse, Barbershop The Next Cut, Girls Trip, Little, First Wives Club, and the upcoming series Harlem. In this interview, Oliver talks about black normalcy in film and television, what led her to becoming a writer slash producer, how to craft IP for black stories, and the most important trait to stay employed as a writer. When I was in college, well, actually even before then, I was all throughout like childhood and like high school, I was always doing like performing arts stuff. So I was singing, dancing, acting, doing all kinds of musicals and when I was a senior in high school, I thought I was going to go to NYU and study acting. And then I ended up getting into Stanford and my parents really, really, really wanted me to go to Stanford because they were hoping that I would probably drop like the artistic dreams of mine and do something they deemed smarter. And so they kind of steered me in that direction. And then they were horrified when I went to Stanford and then majored in drama and <laughs> um, still ended up pursuing it there. And so I was doing like a lot of like plays and musicals and I was always cast as like some version of Rizzo and Grease in everything. <laughs> and then at some point I just kind of realized like, huh, I'm always like the sassy, like funny sidekick and never like the lead. And I was kind of like bitching and complaining about that to my mom who A was already salty that I was still pursuing acting, but B has never been about coddling and complaining about anything. So she was just like, well, you're at school. Why don't you learn how to write then? And you can figure out how to do parts for yourself. You don't have to wait for other people to cast you. 
And I at first thought that was like a really horrible answer. And then eventually thought, hmm, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe I should actually pursue writing and producing and stuff so I can be kind of in the driver's seat. So then I enrolled in this class called Actors Who Write, Writers Who Act. And that was the first time that I wrote something for myself to play. And then eventually it just kind of evolved beyond that to me writing for other people and directing and producing for other people. And then by the time I graduated, I was kind of completely known behind the scenes and not so much in front of the camera or on stage, you know, as an actor anymore, but that was kind of the genesis of it was just performing and being really frustrated by the lack of control and being, I guess, limited to what other people's vision of me was, which I always thought was bigger than where I was always placed. So yeah, I would say acting was kind of like the inspiration behind me getting into writing. Were there any key moments in those early days that started to shape your voice or was it more about just the repetition of writing every day or writing on a schedule? I think for me, what I always wanted that I never got to play was something real. And I know that sounds funny, but I was always like a hyper sexualized or like hyper sassy version of something. And I was kind of like, or I could just be a normal black person. <laughs> so I was just like really attracted to just like really realistic kind of mundane stuff. And, and what I mean by that is just like, just black friendships and just like love stories and just things that were just really normal. And they weren't necessarily about trauma or race or had like this you know greater meaning to it I kind of was just like I really like normal stuff and I wish that that was kind of available for me because I, I kept being in like historical stuff with you know period pieces and slavery and then <laughs> then on the other side it was like you know I'm the like cigarette smoking friend and I was like I kind of just really want to write about like what it just is to be myself and that weirdly was kind of revolutionary, just, just the normalcy of like black life. And so that kind of was what I was focusing on and always like been really attracted to comedy and romantic comedy in particular. And I think like Nora Ephron, like probably was the biggest influence as far as whose voice I really liked at the time, sorry. As you were kind of moving away from some of those tropes, is it harder to sell projects that aren't, um, like I spoke with Eugene Ash that just directed and wrote Sylvie's Love not long ago. And his story mm -hmm. is a black couple in the fifties, but it's not about civil rights. Is it harder to kind of just tell a normal story? Like, are they expecting certain things of black stories? Yes, it's so hard. And I don't know why that is, but for some reason, studio execs and networks exec, network execs often have this idea that being black isn't enough unless it's like riddled with like pain or historical like significance, or you have to be a big superhero. It's like, it just like for whatever reason, just telling a normal story 
you often get the question of like, oh, well, like, why does this matter? Or what's the significance of it? Or, right. you know, why is it relevant? And you're like, well, it's relevant because people just want to see normal stuff sometimes. You just want to laugh and fall in love. And I think what we forget, and that's so great that you mentioned Sylvie's love, which I thought was beautiful. What you forget in, in those time periods, like when you see period pieces, there's a, a tendency to only focus on all of the pain and trauma in those times, but it was love and laughter that got us through it. And those stories are definitely like underexplored and we definitely like over-index in, in the traumatic stuff. And I think that's to our detriment because I, I think that it sends a message that we're not like everybody else, that we don't fall in love, we don't dance, we don't have heartbreak, that we don't have like normal experiences and emotions. And weirdly, that's the hardest thing for me to do is push through the projects that I do, which is, they're all very normal. <laughs> but um, it's been a huge, huge fight for me to be able to write movies like Girls Trip. Is there any specific advice or examples that come to mind of how you kind of, you know, got the normal story? I had a successful pitch meeting, I guess, is my question, or like, does it have to have a hook or what are some of the elements like that, that, you know, kind of push you past the goal line? I think with like girls trip in particular, I would say that bridesmaids help set the tone for it because it was like, okay, well, there's already a template now that you've seen with women being raunchy and funny and it not being centered on men in any way and, and it working out beautifully in the box office. So that was kind of like, okay, we have one template. Before Bridesmaids, there was like nothing to reference as far as just like all women and something raunchy and funny. So then when I was, you know, talking about girl strip, it's like, okay, well, we have bridesmaids. And then it's like, well, those are white women. You're talking about women of color. So how can that be mainstream? And because everyone at the studio was kind of unsure if black women could be mainstream, we were held to a very, very low budget <laughs> on that movie because it was like a scary idea to experiment with black women in a, in a, in a big blockbuster type of way. So yeah, I, I would say Girlship has helped me be able to pitch bigger normal <laughs> ideas, you know, since then, but that was, that's become my own template, if that makes any sense. Like that was an experiment the entire time that we did the movie, everyone was like, you know, this is not going to make a ton of money. So we have to like manage expectations and keep, you know, your imagination to a certain point. It was never really treated like it was going to make $150 million. <laughs> and I always thought it was going to do well. I knew that I was writing something bigger than they knew. I didn't, I, and I truthfully didn't know it was going to make 150. I thought it was going to be profitable for sure. Um, I didn't know it was going to reach those heights, but at the time I was like, I don't believe this is as risky as, as, as everyone's saying it is, but okay. Um, but then since then it's become a lot easier when I go into a room and I'm pitching like horror movies or sci-fi movies. And because now I apply 
the same type of logic to other genres that like, yeah, well, before Get Out or before Girl Strip, you didn't see these things, but, you know, let's be the first like group to do this. And it's a lot easier, I think, now having had some success in the mainstream arena, but um, Girl Strip was, was really complicated. And for years, I have been pitching, let's do like a fun party movie, like bridesmaids or like the hangover with black women and people were like oh but that's an indie and you know you you could do that for like five hundred thousand dollars but that's about it and I'm like well you can't really do that much with five hundred thousand dollars um so I, it just wasn't a thing until it was if that makes sense hmm. um but now it's become a lot easier to pitch it in this in the aftermath of um of girl strip what were some of the other pieces that maybe people didn't see like did the actresses have to take pay cuts did this really dictate what you know what can be done on the page does it mostly just force you to focus on dialogue to make it funny yeah well it's like the actress definitely had to take a pay cut I mean Tiffany Haddish speaks very candidly I think she was paid $75,000 but um she was paid almost nothing for girl strip and at that point she just wanted the role so badly and wanted to prove herself. But yeah, it was like, if you want to do this, everyone has to do it for the love of it. And I, you know, candidly did not make a lot of money writing it. It wasn't treated like a blockbuster movie. You know, if, if we all had like a, a crystal ball and had known what it was going to become, <laughs> I, I think we would have negotiated a lot differently, but at that point, there was this silent understanding between us all that this was kind of a movement in a weird way, that it wasn't about the money. It was like, let's let's do this. Let's do it because if it works, and we all believe it will, but if it works, it's going to make it a lot easier for all of us to get the next project and the next project. So it was kind of a labor of love, but yeah, it was, it was something that all of us just made. I mean, I've... I don't know if I can reveal how much I made on Girl Strip, but it was it, it was embarrassingly low. Right. Um, and I'm okay with that in the long run, but in, in hindsight, I think we all just like maybe sold ourselves short and not really realizing how important and how big the movie was. But yeah, everybody worked under their quotes and fees. Mm-hmm. How has that kind of shifted uh, where your career is now? Like I see you've kind of taken on more of a producer role. Are you considering things more about the back end or what's kind of the natural progression of where you're at now um, with that, with that big credit behind you, but also like as you're navigating between multiple projects at one time. That's definitely what it means as far as producing is concerned. What I, the biggest lesson I got off of Girl Strip, honestly because I made so little off of something that came from my head. Um, <laughs> that's what, that was a takeaway for me. I was like, wow, I created characters. I created like an entire storyline. Um, the movie made really well and I didn't participate in that success at all. And I only got the upfront, the really small upfront fee that I was promised. And so for me, I was like, moving forward, I want to have equity in my imagination. <laughs> like, I, I want to be able to have some type of ownership or back in, in the stuff that comes in my head. And I think that writers are so undervalued. I really do. I, I feel like 
people are starting to get that now. And I'll elaborate more on that in a second. But um, yeah, it was it was after Girl Trip that I was like, hmm, that doesn't feel fair that you can a movie cannot exist unless you write it. But then after its success, you don't participate in any of like the back end. And so I was like, all right, well, moving forward, if someone wants me to write something, then I have to also produce. And if that's not something that people are willing to do, then you're not going to get me to write it. So <laughs> that's kind of like the agreement. And there have been projects, like really good projects that I've passed on because they're like, well, we already have producers. And, and I'm just kind of like, all right, well, I know my value. So I'm not going to sit down and do the really, really hard work without some kind of incentive, you know, in its success. Did that naturally move you eventually more into television too, where you kind of have, you know, the writers and TV are known for having more power or that type of thing, as opposed to movies. It did. It, it definitely did. Um, I think with movies and I still, it's, it's weird because, I would still say, even with all of my TV success, I still love movies. Ultimately, I think I just, there's nothing better to me than sitting in a theater and watching something on the big screen. So that's still my heart and I'll never leave movies alone, but there is something incredibly powerful about showrunning and seeing your creation from beginning all the way through to post-production. And you kind of don't have that opportunity and features because it's so director and producer based that um, once you kind of turn in the script, you know, for Girl Trip, I was fortunate I got to be on set and really experience like a lot of the magic in person, but that's not normal. And that was honestly, I wasn't paid to do that. It was because I wanted to be there and the director and producers were awesome and allowed me to be a part of the process. But normally it's like, thank you for your services. And then you go to the theater or you see a rough cut and you hope that they honored what you wrote. You hope that it, it translated. You hope the director elevated what you did. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And it's, you're just kind of not in the process anymore. And there's something about TV that I was like, ooh, I get to like participate in the casting and, and picking out the clothes and winging on the music. And I just found it really fun. And it also brought me back to my theater days too. Um, theater is, is very, very hands-on. And I would say that that those days and, and that experience as well also lended itself to being able to put together a TV show and showrun it. So I, I love TV for that reason. Tell me a little about um, First, Wives Clubs, First Wives Club and how that came to be. So it's an adaptation for the movie, um, but tell me how like your involvement, how you became the creator of that series. Yeah, so... Um, right around Girl Strip coming out, I got a call from this awesome exec um, named Dana, at, and she was at um, at Paramount at the time, and she was like, "We're rebooting First Wives Club. Have you seen the movie?" And it just so happened, like I love that movie. I love the entire cast: Goldie Hawn and. Diane Keaton and Bette Miller are just icons to me. And so I was like, of course, I'm obsessed with that movie. My mom is, my sister is. I was like, yes, I love it. So much so that it kind of scared me that they wanted to touch it. Um, and so they were like, well, we, we kind of want to 
take the name and the brand, but you have the freedom to do brand new characters as long as it kind of like stays in the vein of what, you know, the movie is. And so after kind of sitting with it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go for it. And if, if people hate me, <laughs> then so be it. But so that it was just kind of offered to me. And I just decided to play with it and kind of hope that it would work out. And luckily I turned in the pilot and initially it was supposed to be, we're just going to shoot a pilot and see, and then it turned into a straight series order. And so it was kind of like, I don't want to say the easiest, but like maybe the most uh, drama free development experience ever because they sought me out and then it went straight to series and it was a project that I loved. So it just all kind of, kind of came together. And then nine months later, I was in New York shooting it. It was really, really fast. Have you done some other work with IPs or is that something that you're looking for now kind of as a producer? I do. I, I do like IP. Um, when I did The Sun is Also a Star, that was based on this YA book. And that was sent to me. And I just thought it was a really cute love story between teenagers. And then I was um, approached a little while ago on figuring out a new Clueless for this generation, another <laughs> um, project that I'm obsessed with. So I do often like playing with IP and figuring out how to update it or if it's a book, you know, to, to try to adapt and translate it, um, you know, for film or TV. But I also really like original stuff too. So I try to make sure I'm not only doing IP because there's just a lot of like original, I think some of your best projects are original ideas and like Girl Strip was original, Get Out was original. And so I try to like, make sure that I'm not only doing IP, even though I do like playing with something that is already, there's already a template for, because it's, I think it's easier in some way to not have to start from scratch or to have something to use as like a guidepost. But then every now and then I'm like, nope, I just want to like write what I feel or write something that's in my brain and I don't want any IP. So I kind of go back and forth. Those that are kind of IP, are you seeing more, more freedom with what you can do? So for example, I spoke with um, Aaron Thomas who does the new show SWAT and he said, well, it's gotta be more than just, you know, this is a story with a white guy and we're making it about a black guy. He said, that's just a cosmetic solution. The perspective is not different enough. Are you seeing more freedom with like the IP that comes to you, like Clueless or whatever it is, taking it in a completely new direction? Is that, is that more allowed? Is that how you kind of pitch it? Yeah, I it's a it's allowed and I would say even encouraged to kind of make it your own. And um like using First Wives Club as an example, I knew that I was going to make them women of color, but I also knew that you can't just change the race and keep everything else the same because all of a sudden now that they're black women it means something different. And so <laughs> it it says something different. The movie is inherently different because these women are not the same. There's a commonality between them, but you know their life experiences and what it means to be a black woman versus what it means to a white woman is like totally different. So you have to write with that type of specificity. And I think when people try to just like, and I've seen, I won't mention projects, but I've seen projects that literally just change the race, but don't address like what that means. And you feel it. 
you feel like this person doesn't feel like a fully realized human being. And it's because they didn't add any like specificity or authenticity to the, to the role and to address the world in a way that's different than the world that, you know, you're, you're copying because in whenever the time period of first wives club in the nineties, like it's a totally different time period today. And so what it means to be divorced is not the same. Um, what it, what it means to be a professional woman is not the same. Like in that movie, all of them were beholden to men. And I was like, well, today so many women make money and they're the bosses. So I was like, I can't directly copy that because it doesn't feel true to where we are as women today. So I think if you're going to do it well, you have to apply it to the time period. You have to take into account cultural and, um, you know, age, gender differences, all of that stuff. So I, I think you're the other person you interview is exactly right. Like, I think if you do it well, you have to address those differences. So you've got, let's, let's kind of talk about um, some of your writing. I'm, I'm curious what your downtime looks like. You've got first five clubs out. You've got a show called Harlem coming out, a show called Savannah coming out. Are you just kind of jumping between projects? Like, what do you do when you have ideas, you have notes? Like, what are some of the logistics of like your process moving between stories and day to day? Oh, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so, it's it. Um, in the world of COVID, it's been just a crazy amount of Zooms. And what's been lost is like sitting face to face with people and kind of like having fun breaking stories and, and having fun like creating different things. So it's turned into a lot of too much alone time for me working on stuff. That's been the downside. Um, and you do also have to like, remember all these characters and storylines. So you're just constantly like going from project to project and just trying to make sure you keep it all straight in your head. So it can be a little chaotic, um, so much so that I'm, I'm thinking moving forward, I'm, I might have to strategize a little differently with how to schedule these things. And I think um, this is probably a, a really relatable thing, but a lot of writers find themselves with these scheduling nightmares because the way that a lot of a lot of writing goes is that you write something, you hope that it goes, you don't know. And so you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, right? And be like, well, this is going to go, so I'm not going to take any more jobs. So then you take another job, and then four months later that thing that you wrote like you know months ago suddenly gets picked up and then the other thing you're working on because the this other project got picked up now suddenly has heat because people are it's like high school where if someone appears popular like they're like oh i i want this person too and i kept finding that was happening like if one project gained heat it would actually like kind of reignite a different one which is great on one hand but it's also horrible on the other because now you're like oh i have two projects going at the same time oh my god how am i going to do this and so that's kind of the the dance that i've been in for the past like couple years is like um being in the lucky and blessed place, but also unfortunate place of having things go simultaneously because it's it is really stressful to 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 be show running two things at once. 
What do you look for as a showrunner for bringing on screenwriters to the writer's room? Is it all about the original scripts? It's about how they are literally interacting face to face. Like what are some of those things you look for? Um, for comedy in particular, I just really like people with funny stories and, and interesting point of views. So if you, if we're interviewing, it already means I, I probably really liked your material and it made me laugh, or I thought it was just really interesting. Um, and so then it just becomes about like your point of view. And I really like people that are different from my point of view. So if someone just has like a, a background or an experience that's like totally different from mine, but, th but that I think is really funny and interesting. I think that's someone great to add to a room because um, I like, you know, a, a fun spirited debate in a comedy room. I like people that have different, you know, ways into stuff and insights because I think the best shows have different points of views and the characters don't all sound the same. And it's hard to kind of do that if everybody sounds like you and if everybody came from a, a, a background like you. So I try to like really make it diverse as far as like age, um, if someone's been married, if someone has kids, like all of those things, like, like really, um, you know, filter our experiences and like what we bring to a room. And so I'm like, well, I don't, I don't need 10 of me. So I just, I just try to like, look at like, who's interesting and how, how we all can fit together and then just don't be an asshole. Like that is, I can pick up on that really quickly and nobody likes to have an asshole in a TV room. It's just, it's already a tough job. And so anybody that's going to take something too seriously and bring the mood down, I'm just not, not interested in that. So I always have really nice rooms too. So you've given a lot of great advice already. Do you have any just other tips for people, novice writers trying to break into the industry today? I think because like social media and PR and, and, I, and I realized the irony of saying this while interviewing, but um, <laughs> I think because social media and PR have become like so important that it's sending a message to newer writers that talent doesn't really matter. I've talked to so many new writers that are more focused on like getting headshots and growing followers than learning like the basics of like, you know, constructing a script. And without that, like you might, you might get a job off of hype and social media, but you're not going to keep it that way. So I think it's really important to just learn your craft and, and for like the, the introverts out there like me, like we, we can kill it because, you know, we often like care a lot about the craft and are the ones I've, I've seen a lot of times are the last ones standing in, in rooms and jobs because we're not out there doing all of the events and all the social things. And instead of looking at that as like, oh, like I'm at a disadvantage because I'm not like that. No, there's a lot of like benefits and advantages to just being the person that knows the craft really well, that studies it, that reads a lot of scripts, that takes it really seriously, that turns in drafts on time, turns in drafts that are good. Um, those people stay employed. So I would, I would honestly say just really, really hone in on craft. And if you're not a natural, like extroverted social media type of person, that's okay. And um, I, 
definitely want to shout out the introverts because I, I think we're we're sending a message that, that we can't have careers in writing and that's so not true. So um, yeah, that would probably be my biggest piece of advice. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.